probably grew up learning that in 1492, what happened? Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That's right. And then through manifest destiny, we very peacefully occupied the lands between here and California. (laughs) Slavery was bad, but we fixed it, and there's no problems now. Oh, and we're recycling now, so the earth is going to be peachy keen. All is swell. At least, that's what I was taught growing up. It's only as an adult I've come to learn that Columbus actually killed or enslaved hundreds of thousands. That manifest destiny took a long time because of the thousands of legal and violent battles where they took land from people who had lived there for thousands of years. We certainly have not dealt with the trauma of slavery. And if you've read the news, you realize that the earth is not peachy keen. As a matter of fact, there are some philosophers who have recently argued that it is immoral to have children. Because if we know of the impending conflicts and battles that will happen as the water levels rise and habitable land decreases, as food prices soar and housing prices skyrocket, the inevitability of war, famine, and pain. Now, whether or not those philosophers are right, we certainly need to get our story straight. And I keep asking, why was I taught that particular version of history and the world as it is? Why do we kind of keep hearing that in school? Why do our children learn that there are pilgrims and Indians and that only one side was known by God? I've come since to believe that historically we've used the Bible and theology piecemeal, self-serving ways to serve our egoic selves. And it's only by looking at those who have been most hurt by our collective egos that God is going to show us a solution. But to figure out how we got here, remember that in the 1090s, Pope Urban II began the Crusades because the Saracens, those Muslims to the east, were growing in power and military and money. Thomas Aquinas affirmed the church's blessing on this mission when he said, Unbelievers deserve not only to be separated from the church, but also to be exterminated from the world by death. Fast forward to 1452. The Ottoman Empire puts up a fortress very close to the Christian West, and it makes Pope Nicholas V very uneasy. So, Pope Nicholas puts out a letter to his friends, the kings of the nation states, and says, look, if you'll send some troops over to fight against these Muslims putting up a fortress over here, I can make sure that there's a sweet deal for all of you countries who are fighting about all these new lands that you're beginning to discover. So, the king of Portugal, Alfonso V, knows a good deal when he sees one, sends some troops, and in exchange, the pope releases the papal bull Dum Diversas, which says that Christian nations are ordained by God to, quote, invade, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens, Muslims, and pagans, and all enemies of Christ, to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery, and to take away all of their possessions and property. This was confirmed by the papal bull Romanus Pontifex in 1455, and by other popes. 1456, 
1481, 1514. And how could the Pope do that? Why would anyone listen to him? It's kind of hard for us in America today to imagine the Pope saying that we should go to war with someone and that the United States or Portugal would send troops to affirm that mission. But back then, people thought that the Pope's words were the one and only words coming straight from God because of the laying on of hands, what's known as Episcopal authority. You know, sometimes here in church we ordain people by laying on hands. Well, the idea was that Jesus had laid his hands onto Peter and the first apostles. Peter, being the first pope, the first bishop, then laid hands onto other bishops and popes who laid hands on others and so on and so forth. So that only those who have come down through the receiving of a laying on of hands have the actual blessing and power to minister in Jesus' name. So you can imagine why other denominations don't like it very much that we ordain all sorts of people, deacons and elders and pastors. So for hundreds of years, people believe that when the Pope says that God has ordained you to go conquer and kill, to discover anyone who's not a Christian, and to use whatever means necessary to take that, take the land, take the money, take the resources, they're going to listen if you believe it's straight from God's mouth. Now, mercantilism could be cloaked in evangelism and soul-saving. The Pope even told them not to trade with these heathens they found, or else they might get more powerful. The Pope told them not to teach these people navigation skills, or else they could become powerful and hurt us. Now, in 1493... Another bull was released by Pope Alexander VI, Intercaterra, in which he suggested that this idea that the nations would have exclusive spheres of influence on the lands that they discovered, that that extended out to the new lands, to the West, to America. And so it began. This is called the doctrine of discovery, that whoever discovers a land in so much as there aren't Christians already living there, it is that nation's land and resources for the taking. And they're allowed to do whatever they want to the people there. This is not a one-off event. It's theological arguing for things that, yes, supported money, but it's not just all about money. They use the Bible to justify this. Whether it was the Great Commission that Jesus gives Go and therefore and make disciples of all nations and baptize them. They would argue that Jesus ordained these actions. They would argue that in Romans 13 there was a divine mandate to rule for kings and that anyone should learn to obey those kings. They argued that there's a story in Exodus and Joshua, you know the one, where the Israelites make it out of Egypt and they're told to go conquer Anybody who lives in the land of Israel, because God has given it to them, by any means necessary, they should put it in their hands. The pilgrims cited that scripture. The settlers going west cited that scripture. And unfortunately, it keeps happening. The Doctrine of Discovery was cited in an 1823 Supreme Court case where they decided where Native Americans can't buy and sell land because it's under the power of the sovereign. And the United States is the sovereign. It happened in 1973 when a federal judge told the Blackfeet tribe, quote, the blunt fact is that an Indian tribe is sovereign 
to the extent that the United States permits it to be sovereign, neither more nor less. And is most recently mentioned in a Supreme Court case in 2005. So what does the doctrine of discovery have to do with our planet? Anyone remember learning about manifest destiny? Raise your hand if you remember that from school. All right. Continue raising your hand if you ever played the computer game Oregon Trail. There we go. Continue raising your hand if you have that game currently on your smartphone device. I got three. I got three. It's a fun game and fairly harmless. It's not violent, so kids can play it. And at that point, when I played it growing up, much of my generation learned that that's what Manifest Destiny was about. Settlers peacefully going across the rest of the country. The only bad things at that time were dysentery and having your wagon fall over because the river was a little bit faster and deeper than you actually thought it was. Today, you can purchase the game and have your children taken away by a giant hawk. That's a very frightening endeavor. But the point of this is for us to understand that that story we've been taught is not reality. Matter of fact, I looked up where this term was coined. It was by John O'Sullivan in 1845. He wrote that the right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent, which providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty, is right, such as that of a tree to the space of air and the earth, suitable for the full expansion of its principle and destiny of growth. That's right. We get to take the land from the heathens because God gave us this right, just like God gave trees the desire to expand. Have you ever heard of a piece of nature being described so violently? Expanding? Taking over? If you send the metaphor out, you realize that Western expansion, then, is this terrible invasive species that takes over that ruins anyone in its way, ruins any resources, and destroys anybody that stands against it. But here's some good news, because it's not all terrible news. Terrible things have happened, but we have an image for what God is calling us to. Remember that picture from Revelation that the scripture writer gave to us. We're told that in the end of all things, God will come and dwell with all people. And there will be a city that all nations commingle in together. And in the middle of it, there will be a tree. The river will lead people to that tree. And in that tree, there will be 12 different fruits. And that the leaves will be for the healing of all the nations. Now, I don't know if we have any farmers in the sanctuary today, but you probably remember that when it comes time to plant a crop, you don't think about having 12 different fruits on a tree. You want to plant one crop, line it up in a row, and make sure that no other species come and take care of it, take out its nutrients, take out whatever it needs to grow and survive, to, to shade over its leaves or its fruit. That would destroy everything. But what if we've missed the point in the way we treat the earth, 
that all of this comes back not only just to money, but the way we view the world. Maybe crops can point the way. See, Richard Rohr, a theologian, suggests that the root of all our problems has less to do with money than it does our egoic self. If you ever worshipped in the first service, you've probably heard one of my babies crying at some point in time. That's because they need something. They have a need that needs fulfillment. That's what our egoic selves need. The problem comes as we grow up and then we have this self who has a need and desire and then this self has a need and desire. Different people. And what do we do when we come against one another? We have to deal with those differences. Well, we could share. We could divvy things up. Or we could use violence. I get it and you don't. It's especially helpful when you view the world through the lens that God has ordained me to use violence and whatever means necessary for me to get whatever my egoic self tells me I need. You see this in the way we've ruined our, our farmland over the years. You've seen this in the way that we want to drive pipelines through any part of the country, despite whoever lives there and who has the rights. I believe our hope comes to us from this picture in Revelation and by looking to the very people who have been most affected by our egoic selves. My colleague at Bradley Hills, Pastor Corey Phillips, tuned me into a writer, Robin Wall Kimmerer. She's a botanist that draws on her Potawatomi rituals and traditions to drive her scientific quest. And each year, Dr. Kimmerer hosts a Three Sisters Potluck Feast. Each dish is made either with corn, beans, or squash. Now, one of these three sisters is typically grown all together in indigenous planting methods of the Native Americans. Doesn't sound like lining up a crop. Here's how it works. We understand, she says, that the gifts of each sister are more fully expressed when they nurture together rather than alone. First, there's the corn, the oldest sister, who sprouts from the soil, tall, straight, leading the way for the others. She comes up quicker than the others, more flexible and adaptable. Next, you have the bean seedlings, who weave around the first sister, not strangling the stalk, but working their way around the leaves in the path that's set forth by the corn. And then finally, the youngest sister appears, the squash. She doesn't follow the path of the first sisters too closely. She chooses her own path as she extends outward from the base of the plants. Her squash leaves are large and close to the ground. And using her own unique gifts to protect the other two, those leaves shade the soil, keep it moist, and protect the roots by stabilizing them from wind and storm and even from weeds. Now, the middle sister, the bean sister, at first glance, might appear to be taking advantage of the other two, benefiting from the corn's support and the squash's shade. However, she, too, gives as much as she receives. Botanical science tells us that the bean plant absorbs nitrogen from the air and releases it as nutrients into the soil, providing a natural fertilizer for the corn and squash. Thus, each sister offers her unique gifts for the good of the trio. So what's the lesson, the takeaway for us? These plants tell us to respect one another, to support one another, 
to bring your gift to the world and receive the gifts of others. And there will be enough for all. Richard Rohr suggests that we try to move away from our egoic worldview to a ternary worldview. Ternary referencing three, the Trinity. We see this image of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator, redeemer, and sustainer, an internal dance of love working together for the world. What if it could be that way for us? What if we could cast aside our conquistadora past and decide that the world that we are going to build for our children is not one of pillaging and conquering, but of sharing, of cultivating the resources of others, of discovering the good that is given by God in every other human being and in the land which we're given to dwell on. I pray that it may be so. I pray that this week, when you walk outside, you will actually touch a piece of grass. Not just use it for your enjoyment, but to remember where it all comes from. I pray that you'll think about who lived here before we did. To find your roots and to connect them to the grand story of God's love for the whole world. pray that you'll remember the biblical stories of God's people moving in and out of lands and always remembering God's care for all of them. May you and I remember that it all belongs to God. And may we all get wrapped up in the divine dance of love. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we give thanks. Amen.